Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. Our Common Ground, Redefining Black Power, the book and the project, Critical Black Thought, Framing Our Past to Focus on Our Future. Our guest, noted broadcast journalist and author, Joanne Griffith. In our second hour, The Murder of Trayvon Martin, we say, I am Trayvon. But what does that mean? How do we defend our sons, nephews, husbands in the face of a justice system that fails them? The fear of black men. Stay tuned. This is Our Common Ground. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time. Thank you for being with us here. In this edition of Our Common Ground, I'm Janice Graham, your host, and so glad to be back after a prolonged absence. Uh, Before we begin tonight, as we talk about redefining black power, a book of movement, 
and a notion with our guest Joanne Griffith and we will move on to the Trayvon Martin case murder undercover of law I do want to thank all of our loyal listeners uh, for your support your words of comfort condolences and holding my hand during the recent illness and death of my mother. As all of you know who have been loyal listeners for some time, I was very close to my mother. Her loss in my life is a deep gully that I am attempting to navigate. And thank you so much. I especially want to thank the crew of our network, TruthWorks Network, for their support by holding up the gauntlet on talk radio, speaking truth more than once. I want to especially thank uh, Alpha, who has been at the helm, the Alpha show on Saturdays at 3 p.m., Elvin Dowling and Friends, Architects of Change, on Wednesdays at 9 p.m., Peter E. Matthews uh, at Global Village Voices, and LDX on Thursdays and Fridays, not Friday nights, on TruthWorks Network for all of their support. Peter has been bringing some very powerful guests to TruthWorks Network, and we especially thank you all. I especially want to thank my colleague, India DeClaire, who has been supportive, and those phone calls and emails and notes on Facebook have been so helpful to me, and uh, we are just so grateful to have good friends, to have a listenership that cares not only about each other, but about what we do here at Our Common Ground. Thank you so very much, and later in the program, I'll be doing a, uh, be talking about my mother, and uh, it feels very strange coming on the air tonight uh, without her... Um, calling to ask, what are you doing on the show? Who's coming on? What are you going to talk about? And providing her analysis of whatever topic uh, that we have uh, for in store for you. So thank you very much. Our number is 347-838-9852. If you're on a mobile device and you'd like to call in and sit, you simply call the number. You don't hit one, and you will be able to listen to our show. Tonight at Our Common Ground, a very special idea and notion. One of the most notable, one of the notable uh, broadcast journalists who has been telling stories throughout the about and throughout the diaspora for over 15 years is Joanne Griffith. She has now edited a book, a book of thought leadership about the notion of redefining what black power is all about. And we thank her very much for joining us this evening. Joanne, thank you so very much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Joanne, are you there? I'm seeing her, but I am not hearing her. And I'm wondering if I'm doing something wrong. Uh, it took a little bit to try to reorientate myself about doing this broadcast. Um, 
but we will get um pick her up as soon as uh we hear from her. Maybe she stepped away for a minute. But this whole notion of redefining black power has me intrigued. Um, one of the threads uh, that influences uh, discussions in the media from political campaigns to how the Obama girls wear their hair or go to Mexico is always ever-present. But one of the problems that I see with the American media and the Obama presidency is that the rise of Pres- President Obama runs parallel to the de- continuing decline in the press um, of the shallow and sensationalistic coverage of the issues that are before black people. In this book, Redefining Black Power, it's a work in progress. Um, our guest tonight, Joanne Griffith, is experienced as a as a broadcast journalist at BBC, NPR, and Pacifica Radio. And there are archives, and she has gathered them together to give us an idea. But before we talk to her, one of the things that we might want to do is take a look at this whole notion of black power. The whites cut out. They flee to the suburbs. And the community that you thought you were integrating soon becomes another all-black slum, another all-black ghetto. It might have been whipped up by militant, anti-white black Muslims. It might have been poverty. That We should control the politics and the politicians in the community where we live. We should control the businesses and create employment opportunities for ourselves And the social philosophy of black uh, nationalism only means that we should do something to uplift the standard and the level of our own society and put it on par with others. We want black power. Can you tell black people to be nonviolent and at the same time condone the sending of white killers into the black community? It's something wrong. We are going to control our communities by any means necessary. That's all we've been doing, begging, begging. It's time to stand up and take over. The government is responsible for the injustice. We built the country up, we'll burn it down. We don't advocate violence, but our people have been the constant victims of brutality on the part of America's racists, and the government has found itself either unwilling or unable to do anything about it. We've got to build so much strength in building our community, that if they come to get one person, they're going to have to mess with us all. That's what we got to do. That's what we got to do. I say violence is necessary. Violence is a part of America's culture. It is as American as cherry pie. Like that party called freedom. Freedom is black power. What is black power? Black power is not just a mere slogan. Like that party called full employment for all our people. Black Panther Party calls for an end in capitalist exploitation of our community. We've got to build so much strength inside our community so that when LBJ says, come here, boy, tomorrow we'll be safe. Hell no, we ain't. So I would like to say that we're one tonight. Let us be one in the future. Power to all of us. 
white people in America think that blacks are pushing them too fast, and they are, are experiencing what they have begun to call the white back. So how do we redefine black power in the era of Obama and post-racialization? Our guest tonight, Joanne Griffith, the noted broadcast journalist of the BBC, NPR, and the author, Redefining Black Power, Reflections on the State of Black America. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to ours and ourselves. And that is a very brief overview of the iconic way in which we view the black power movement of the 60s and 70s. And what our guest tonight is suggesting is that with millions of people, especially African-American people, out of work, with the election of the first African-American president, that somehow we need to go back and look at some of those ideals that formulated in the opening pages of Redefining Black Power, Joanne Griffin outlines some key questions uh, which are addressed by the book's contributors. The contributors include Dr. Vincent Harding, Julianne Malveaux, Ramona Africa, uh, Van Jones, and Lynn Washington. And uh, one of the things that really caught my eye uh, was that this project of putting these thought leaders together in conversation about black power began in 2009, just months after President um, Barack Obama's inauguration. And in the final chapter, the editor, Joanne Griffin, outlines fresh questions sparked by discussion, which these uh, important critical thinkers try to to um, assess and to respond to. We're still going to try to get to Joanne. Joanne, are you there? Um, something's going wrong with either her phone or the way in which she called in. Joanne Griffith, welcome to Our Common Ground. We don't have her. Okay. But let me let me talk a little bit more about this book. Um, one of the most uh, prolific sections of the book is what it, it, the, the title of the, the, the chapter is What About the brother at the bottom of the well. And 
Professor Michelle Alexander, who is the author of the new Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, responds by examining the past, the present, and future impact of the prison system on African-American society. On the other hand, um, Dr. Julianne Malveaux, analyzes the economic inequalities that exist across black America and the challenges facing African-American leaders to close the financial divide. The name of the book, Redefining Black Power, Reflections on the State of Black America. Joanne Griffin is our guest tonight. Joanne, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so very much for joining us. I I just went through some of the chapters of the book. But give us a history of this book and tell us what the intent, I mean, the thought leadership that you are presenting. And by the way, I am such an admirer of your work um, at Pacifica Radio and, and and so honored to have you with us tonight. But yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry there seems to have been a technical challenge. I was sitting here waiting for a phone call, and then I was like, let me just go online and just double-check. So I just wanted to let the listeners to know I always make sure that I'm on time, but I was I was sitting by my phone while you were sitting waiting for me. So <laughs> I'm well, glad we're connected we now. It did give me an opportunity to go back and look at some of the iconic imagery and messages of the Black Power Movement of the 60s and 70s. Uh, of which I was a part. Uh, but tell us about the book. Tell us about the project um, and uh, and how you engaged people like Dr. Julianne Malveaux, who's a very good and close um, personal friend, and Dr. Vincent Harding, who I absolutely adore, and Michelle Alexander, that I respect so much, and Van Jones and Ramona Africa. You did it all here, Joanne. <laughs> Well, to, to answer the first part of the of the questions and, and greetings to yourself, Janice, and to your listeners tonight, the, the project really was born out of the Pacifica Radio Archives, which is based in Los Angeles, where I currently am. And it was really a vision of the director, Brian DeShazer, who for many years, for over a decade now, has become really intimately equated with with um, with some of the recordings there. And it was one particular recording of Fannie Lou Hamer that he was listening to. And it was the one with Fannie Lou describing how she was beaten by um, fellow African-Americans at the behest of um, white prison guards and beaten so badly that she ended up with a blood clot. And for Brian, he really recognized that a, he was in a very privileged position to have access to this material and have access to this kind of history and those kind of voices in a way that many people just didn't. So redefining black power is really, for him, a way to not only share the material that it was that's in the archives, but to make sure that whenever anybody um, going forward in history is looking back on the Obama presidency, that they really get to see it 
through this particular project through the eyes of African Americans. Um, you know, people hear my accent and be like, "Well, hang on a minute, she's not African American. I am black. I was born in the UK. I've been here in the, the US for five years. My husband is African American. I've studied <laughs> all of this kind of stuff for a very long time. It's been the bulk of, of what I've worked on throughout my career. So that was kind of the the genesis of it. So straight after the 2008 election, we spent a lot of time um, with the Pacifica stations gathering voices um, with activists and community leaders, community organizers, trying to get that initial response to, you know, what did the election of an African-American man mean to black folks? The book then really took a lot of the questions and issues and revelations that came out of those roundtable discussions in early early 2009 and with the likes of Dr. Harding and Michelle Alexander and Dr. Malvo and Van Jones and so many others, we really then got into some of the meat, I think, of what black America has been talking about over the past two years. So Redefining Black Power is really about the perspective of the activists, so from the religious side, from um, uh, looking at mass incarceration, looking at green activism, looking at the role of the revolutionary, looking at um, our finances, and really trying to get a sense of, well, are we any better off than any of us were in 2007 or 2008? And how do we begin to move beyond this point? President Obama is one individual, but as Dr. Vincent Harding says in his infinite wisdom, you know, he said that, you know, Barack Obama can't change a country. He can't change history in that way. But we are all part of the movement for the expansion and deepening of democracy. It is incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we do our work to make sure that we don't have a repeat of what happened in the 50s and the 60s, that please God that we don't have a repeat of what's happening in Florida right now with Trayvon Martin. You know, we're all responsible for that, not President Obama. So it it was a lot of work, but it was a real pleasure. And I have to say, all the people in the book, it was one or two emails or phone calls, and they were all more than happy to um, to be a part of this project. So it made my life a lot very, very easy, um, but has enriched my life in, in so many ways beyond yeah. having had the opportunity to write a book. Well, when, when I um, reviewed the book uh, when it was first published, one of the things that I thought about is that you certainly – had gathered together what I call uh, critical black thought leadership. And, and I wondered to myself whether or not, we hear these people, we see them on TV, we hear them on Pacifica Radio, uh, we hear them um, on Our Common Ground, we, we, we hear them in, in bits and pieces, and we don't get an, an absolute big picture of what they are thinking about. They're they're thinking on our behalf, they're they're researching on our behalf. But what are they thinking about personally? And one of the things that I loved about the book was that I got the sense that I know what bothers and moves Michelle Alexander or Dr. Vincent Harding. Um, yeah, and, so the, and there was that was a one wonderful thing. part of the book. 
Yeah, thank you. And, I, and I'm glad that that came through because I um, remember the conversation that I had with Michelle very clearly. We sat down. She happened to be in Los Angeles actually promoting um, the new Jim Crow at the time. And, you know, she, it was so powerful. I mean, with, with all the people in the book, whether it actually ended up in the book or, you know, we just discussed it, I asked them all about, you know, their initial memories of the election campaign and of election night. 2008 particular and Michelle's story was so powerful because she said you know she remembers coming out of um, an, you know an Obama um, party in um, Columbus Ohio everyone was on, on a high and so excited but the first thing she saw when she stepped out the door was a, a black man with his hands in handcuffs and his face on the floor with five or six police officers, as she says, you know, kicking it and shooting the breeze around him. And she said, in that moment, it made me think, what does the election of a black man mean for this brother? You know, and it, it's things like that that I think don't ordinarily come out, um, you know, and I really made an effort to make these just a conversation. You know, it wasn't me, the journalist, asking questions, trying to get a certain angle. It was just like, what do you think about this? So um, I'm, I'm really glad that, that that came through for you. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you you make it clear in the book, and I'd like for you to talk with our audience about uh, your impressions from putting these people together uh, about whether or not conditions for blacks in the U.S. Uh, change for the better during this president's uh, tenure, uh, particularly looking at things like poverty, unemployment, education, because he ran a campaign of, yes, we can. Hmm. And I'm wondering if the African-American citizen is experiencing it in in the spirit in which we felt it at the time of his election. Is there further evidence that indicates disadvantages or lack of access, what were they saying? Well, at the time, and bearing in mind that the interviews that I did were connect, um, conducted between September of 2009 all the way through to August of last year, and there definitely was a, um, a shift in the perception and a shift in the discussion as to how much President Obama had achieved in terms of um, the African-American public. Um, I think certainly for all of the contributors, there was um, still a fair amount of hope that conditions would be better, but we also had to look at it against the backdrop of what he inherited. You know, trillions of dollars, I think it was $1.6 trillion in debt, he inherited wars in Afghanistan and elsewhere. We then had the situation with Libya. I think there was a feeling that even though it was great that President Obama really wanted to tackle health care when he first got into office, that perhaps his first priority really should have been the employment situation. Um, you know, we saw it at epic levels for African Americans up until the back end of last year, and it's still far higher <laughs> than it is for any other community in the United States. So we can probably say that there has been a failure on, on that part. Rates of poverty among um, young children here in the United States is the worst, it's far worse for African-American children than it is for anybody else. Incarceration rates, again, much higher for African-Americans than it is for any other race. Education, um, we had a 
when we were traveling around the United States um, in February, having a series of conversations inspired by the book, we had um, one, one discussion here in Los Angeles um, called Race and Education in the Age of Obama. And we're seeing, again, low graduation rates, especially for young uh, African-American boys. We're seeing situations where classes may be 80% African-American Latino, but yet the teachers are 80% white here in Los Angeles in the LAUSD area. So it's these kind of issues that are still a problem. I think what everybody in the book does come back to, however, is, well, how much of, how much of um, solving the problems are down to the president and how much of solving the problems is actually down to us at the local level? And I, I think that's something everyone feels very uneasy about and isn't necessarily mm-hmm. sure how we do that but i think certainly we're seeing especially again sorry to bring it back to this but just this week with the rallies and so on that are going on with Trayvon martin that people are beginning to understand once again as they did in the 50s and 60s and 70s that we cannot rely on our elected officials to change what's going on in our local communities at some point we need to start taking responsibility mm-hmm for that so you know the conversation continues and changes almost on a daily and weekly basis you know in that regard you make an excellent point because i think that even though i am a person over the last 25 years in broadcasting have had the opportunity to talk to um all of the most celebrated uh black uh intellectuals scholars and thought leaders uh, across the country, um, nay, across the world, uh, within the diaspora, um, <clears throat> I get confused sometimes about where it is that line exists, where we have to transfer our sense of problems, our, our core of problem solving from the local and state to the federal. And the Trayvon Martin case certainly has been one of the things that has has reflected has been reflected uh on that issue. Let me ask you about what uh, Michelle um Alexander and others who are contributors in the book have to say about what people individually at the local level can force and what the government should be addressing. Because I think that part of what happened to President Obama coming in was that many many people were not satisfied with the kind of people that he brought into the, the expertise and the insight of the people that he brought into his administration. Yeah, and and you know that I think that was that really was an issue for for many people. You know, not just who he brought in, but perhaps some of the people that that he left out. Um, all of the contributors, again, in, in the book, um, Bar Van Jones, and I think he had an interesting insight. But I'll, I'll kind of come back to that. But there was a feeling that you know there weren't enough conversations with African American leaders, or there weren't enough conversations in terms of. Um, you know, some of the situations that were of particular concern to African-Americans. Um, I think Congresswoman Maxine Waters put it very well, um, I think it was in 2011, may even have been in 2010, where she said, you know, if 
in Iowa, you know, a key primary state on the on the presidential trail, if Iowa had the kind of unemployment rates that we were seeing among African Americans at the time, I think it was like a shade under under sixteen percent, she said there would be very specific and targeted policies to address that. Why are we not seeing that? being done for African Americans. And, you know, very shortly after that, we saw the American um, Jobs Act being, act being being kind of peddled around and, and discussed. But I think that's where people feel that there has been a failure. It's like, you know, no one's asking for a special handout. No one's asking for, um, for special treatment. However, when there are clear problems and issues in a particular community, you can't say that you're going to ignore it because, well, you don't want to upset everybody else. You know, the Latino lobby has made sure that immigration has absolutely been put on the table. The LGBT community absolutely made sure that things like don't ask, don't tell were put on the table. So, you know, that there's a part of the part of it where we have to say, well, President Obama said, yes, we can, not yes, I can, but there has to be a sensitivity to particular issues and problems um, and to come back I just you know I, I had mentioned Van Jones there before you know he had a really interesting insight as someone who worked albeit briefly <laughs> in the administration where he said that you know there are I guess around about a thousand people that work um, in some way shape or form within the administration and he said it was a really scary thing for him when he got there and he looked around and he said you know where did everybody go where did all of the support go he said it was like hope and change just packed up and went home, and a few of them inside the administration were kind of left to try and make changes. And he said, "You just," he said, "more than ever, when you're on the inside, you realise in some respects actually just how powerless you really are, which may be what the president is experiencing." Yeah, and and you know one of the things that we cannot, and I, I just want to add uh, to this for our audience to consider, is that we cannot. We cannot forget how unsettling politically it was for the the emergence of the Tea Party and the power that they brought with them, and the and 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 the debacle, the media debacle of Reverend Jeremiah Wright. I mean, imagine yeah. for a moment, Joanne, that. Uh, you had someone in this book who was terribly controversial, and I do want to talk about one of those people, but the media just seemed to join the bandwagon of the Tea Party um, or become the first tea part of the Tea Party movement with uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, and here is a man going into the White House as uh, President of the United States with all of this stuff. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the Tea Party, and we kind of get into it in a few ways um, in the book. Um, you know, we talk about media coverage of the Obama presidency with Lynn Washington. Um, a few other folks kind of make reference to it as well, Van, Van Jones. But here's the thing. <laughs> There's, you know, I am in no way, obviously, a Tea Party sympathizer in any way, shape, or form. But a few people in the book did make the point that the Tea Party were organized, and they made sure that they made noise and they made noise and they made noise regardless of who was going to hear them. Now, Lynn Washington makes the point in terms of the failure of the media. You know, we are, 
you know, Janice, you've been doing this for, you know, a quarter of a century, for 25 years. But, you know, we are the fourth estate. We do have a responsibility as journalists and program makers and writers to make sure that we tell the truth where it is not being told, or at the very least to expose it. And what's really happened with this 24-hour media machine is that there are no checks and balances, there are no filters. Everything is about the power of the soundbite. So when you have someone like Glenn Beck going on saying that Van Jones is a communist and that he believes in 911 um, conspiracy theories, and nobody is checking that, nobody is countering that. Um, We've also seen it in terms of, like you said, what happened with with um, Dr. Reverend Jeremiah Wright? Now, I actually interviewed Jeremiah Jeremiah Wright for the book, but uh-huh. it didn't actually end up in the book because he was. It was a wonderful interview, but he was so abused by what was said about him that it was really difficult for him to even mention President Obama's name. I think yeah. we talked for nearly two hours, and he mentioned his name once. So it was difficult to have a conversation about the president <laughs> and his impact without actually yeah. having that kind of impact. But this is this is what happens when people's names are banded around, when the power of the soundbite is king. This is what happens to people. And... You know, I, I feel that some of my journalist colleagues need to <laughs> to do way better because yeah. we do. You know, we have to hold the presidency accountable, but we also have to make sure that we tell the truth, and that doesn't always happen at all. You know, but the detail the, the detail of that point for our listeners is simply that even leaders. Uh, I have uh, known Reverend Doctor Jeremiah Wright for many many years. Are, are traumatized by the same kinds of experiences, by the same kinds of notions, and in the same way that we are as individual citizens. And my point before was simply this. This president went into the White House uh, like a human piece of Swiss cheese. (laughs) Hmm. <laughs> That's such a good I way mean, to put it. I like that. <laughs> and 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 it, it's much like if I take a job and um, something about my past, which is contrary to my leadership in my job or getting my job done, and it hits the newspaper a week before I go to the job and everybody's talking about it and it becomes an issue, it is unsettling. And this president went into the White House unsettled. Um, And I think that his intent was to fix it in the first year and a half, and the fixing was even muddled. Well, and, you know, and and it's difficult to... You know, I believe that, and I still believe that President Obama, his his heart is only about doing what is best for the United States. I really believe that he does want to fix things, that he does want to leave the country in a better situation than than, than when he arrived. But, you know, look at what he's had to deal with in Congress. Look at how, you know, one individual stood up and actually called him a liar 
on the House yeah. floor. It's like, you know, it's just a complete disrespect for the office of the presidency and a complete disrespect for President Obama himself. You know, even up until very recently, just last week, I was listening to a radio report where there are still questions about whether he's actually American. It's like, come on. Right. We have yeah. bigger issues at hand, you know, but this is stuff that's still making its way, it's seeping into the news agenda because someone, somewhere, some editor thinks that this is news and it's like, no, it's actually compromising the office of the president and the real work that needs to be done. So, you know, it's, um, I'm not surprised that he walked into, as you said, as a human piece of Swiss cheese unsettled because, you know, it was an unsettled time, but I don't feel that he's actually got much of an easier mm-hmm. ride since then. It's been, it's been a tough mm-hmm. three years for him. Mhm. Mhm. Now, uh let's let's move uh to one of the um um people for which um I was most interested in in the in the um chapter um uh, a story of revolution with Ramona Africa. What was that interview like? It was fantastic. <laughs> um, it was one of those I wasn't actually able to do face-to-face, but, um, you know, Ramona was actually in the studio in Philadelphia and I was in Los Angeles. And you all know this, you know, there's a way that, you know, sometimes you go into, a, into an interview and you're like, okay, I kind of, I've got my questions turned out, I've done my research. Okay, so this is kind of what we're looking for. And I think the interview was about three or four hours. And jam-packed with so much knowledge and insight and just a completely different take on the Obama presidency and just really, for me, showed the diversity of who we are as a people. Um, But the real um, nugget, if you like, and the one thing this day that really sticks out to me from that interview is when Ramona Africa said, you know, President Obama is the new crack He's anesthetized the people. He's anesthetized us. He's the new crack. And it was just like silence (laughs) for a little while. (laughs) And she said, well, you know, let me go on to explain what I mean. And she said, you know, it was actually um, something that Fred Hampton Jr. had said to her. And she said, you know, but there is a way that she said, I have nothing against him personally. But she said, we really are in danger of handing over our agency to one individual and saying, go and make it right. She said, you know, President Obama is a politician, like all the other politicians, and he wants to be re-elected in four years' time. So he's going to do, and this is Ramona's word, you know, he's going to do what he feels he needs to do to toe the line and to be re-elected. And she said, you know, I didn't vote. I don't believe in voting because I don't necessarily feel that it changes anything. And she was, you know, one of those people, again, that said, you know, it's really about what we choose to do at the local level. But, yeah, you know, I'm I'm pretty certain there aren't too many people around that are describing the president as the new crack. You know, she said it very powerfully, but it was something, um, a, a thought that really was echoed with, um, with the other contributors. You know, he's not the savior, he's not the messiah. He said, yes, we can, not yes, I can. So everybody in their own way, Dr. Vincent Harding as well, when he said that, you know, when I was in the movement in the 50s and 60s, he said it was never our intention to set out to have an African-American president. He said it's great that it's happened, but he said that's never what it was about. And he said we cannot lose sight now 
that he's there to think, yay, we're living in a post-racial society, everything's fantastic. He said, now more than ever, we have to make sure that we do the work that does really need to be done because it's not over by any stretch. Wow. We're being visited here at our Common Ground tonight with Joanne Griffith. She edited the book, Redefining Black Power, Reflections on the State of Black America. You can go to citylights.com uh, uh, to purchase the book. And she also wrote the introduction. Uh, the book includes critical thought leaders, Dr. Vincent Harding, Michelle, Dr. Michelle Alexander, Dr. Julianne Malveaux, who talks about economic parity and racial equality, Ramona Africa, and um, Lynn Washington and Van Jones. We'll continue our discussion with her when we return from this break because we want to talk about redefining black power, the movement, the project. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. You one of the truth seekers? Join us. On TruthWorks Network, where truth is the language that we speak. Legal Services represents people in all types of housing cases, including mortgage foreclosures, unlawful evictions, and substandard housing conditions. It got to the point where the house was in foreclosure. I found myself against the wall and decided to do something and take some action. This client was talked into a loan he couldn't afford. A year later, he owed more than ever before and had nothing to show for it. I called legal services and I got someone on the phone immediately. Had I not gotten help from legal services, I wouldn't be here today. Common Ground, Redefining Black Power, the book and the project, Critical Black Thought, Framing Our Past to Focus on Our Future. Our guest, noted broadcast journalist and author, Joanne Griffith. In our second hour, The Murder of Trayvon Martin, we say, I am Trayvon. But what does that mean? How do we defend our sons, nephews, husbands in the face of a justice system that fails them? The fear of black men. Stay tuned. This is Our Common Ground. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time. And we want to thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. We're here every Saturday night 
Our guest tonight, Joanne Griffith. Joanne, this book has got to be like number one of the trilogy. <laughs> I, I hope so. We. <laughs> you can, you can, you should, can, can we just cut that bit out and just send that bit to the? <laughs> well, it's it's you know, funny I, actually. Sorry, go ahead. I, I just think that our people need to focus on the study of where we are and 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 look at in a much more detailed uh and insightful way our problems and this book offers that and i i do want to thank you so much and i know that pacifica archives allowed you the opportunity to do this but it is the idea of of having this um you know i i i, I every library ought to have this book. I agree. <laughs> but it's, but you it's know so important. It, it it's an it's an interesting thing that you know when when you do this kind of work you never really you know you never really you have a hope um that people understand it and embrace it and find some way to use it and what's been interesting being on the road and having these what I feel are really crucial conversations around, you know, education and activism and, um, you know, our healthcare system and, and so many other things is that you realize that people want to talk. You know, they really want to understand, like, okay, why are we, well, in some respects, why are we still having this conversation, but how can we make it better? Um, when we were in New York, we had two really key conversations, one about, um, you know, African-American women and how we're portrayed in the media, and another one looking at the role of the African-American man in this age of Obama. And there was real anger in one sense, but healing in, in another. And it's you really realize that we just don't talk about this stuff. Um, on the flip side, though, I went to Wisconsin. Um, it was a completely different audience. It was a predominantly white audience, you know, progressive as well. But they were really struggling with how do we have really simple conversations surrounding race with people who just do not want to tackle it, who don't see it as something that is an issue or a problem in Wisconsin. And I was so touched when one young man, he you know, he purchased a couple of copies of the book, and he said, you know, I'm going to take this book home, and it's, it has allowed me, it's given me passage and a way to sit down and have a truthful conversation about race with my father that I have never been able to have because I feel like this is a tool that I can use to have that conversation. So when you call it a project, it really is that. It's not just about this book. You know, there are plans for at least one other book, probably two, but these conversations that we're hosting and, and also as well inviting people um, to the website redefiningblackpower.com where people can leave blog posts and videos and audio clips of how they're feeling because, you know, this was a project that was born out of the Pacifica Radio Archives. It was born out of history, out of the voice of Fannie Lou Hamer. And we want to make sure that people have a resource in years to come that they can tap into and say, what were black folks talking about and thinking about while there was a black president. So that's what we're really hoping, that, you know, it's not just about the book and, you know, talking about it now, but this is a project that's going to continue throughout this year, hopefully, you know, for another four years if President Obama gets in in 2012. But it's a conversation that we've only really scratched the surface of. There's, there's so much to talk about, and 
you, you know, I could probably do this work for the rest of my life and never be done. I, I said that about 20 years ago about doing Our Common Ground. I could do this work and never be done. Yes, it, it, it's uh, soul work. It's soul work. Mm-hmm. It it really is. It's, you know, um, uh, by trade I'm something else, but by uh, my life's work is here at Our Common Ground. Let me ask you about, and, and that's a really interesting notion, that people can go to redefiningblackpower.com and enter into the registry, the worldwide registry, their thoughts about what this was like. Uh, Despite all of the problems that we have with, uh, or all the issues that I have with this administration and some of the legislative work that they have done and some of the social issues that they have not tackled, Hmm. I think that we have to honor the historical significance of these past four years. And one way in which to honor it is to go on record so that our children can can understand their future in the context of our past. As I always say here at Our Common Ground, history is everything. And this is our history. Uh, the whether it be Trayvon Martin or the passage of the health care uh, plan or the Republican attack on women, this is on women's reproductive uh, rights, this is history, just as the black power movement of the 60s and 70s was our history. And we can go back and we can listen to Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown and Kwame Toure and listen to Fannie Lou Hamer and read the works of Ida B. Wells. Right. uh, And understand the rise of black people through the eyes of W.E.B. Du Bois. that That is our history, but now is also our history. That's and it, and we, and we are all a part of it. Exactly. From talking with uh, people like Dr. Vincent Harding, who's I've known Rivers, uh, just moves me. It's a book. Uh, I read Herm, uh, Howard Thurman and, and Vincent Harding regularly uh, for uh, when I need to be uplifted. Uh, Julianne Malveaux and Ramona um, Africa and Lynn Washington, what are the prospects for this election in the in the reflection of what is going on with the uh, vitriol kind of racism and push toward white supremacy that's going on in this country? You know, I get a little depressed <laughs> when I think about this, this coming election season. You know, if we thought that 2008 was dirty, I think it was nothing compared to what we're going to see coming up in, in 2012. I mean, you know, the GOP, they're already slugging it out. And, you know, in some respects, the longer they slug it out, then, you know, the shorter the time is going to be that it's just going to be, you know, whoever the GOP candidate is. And, and President Obama kind of going going toe to toe, going toe to toe, but 
you know, there are just so many unresolved issues. And in some respects, maybe, maybe we were a little naive to expect that um, President Obama would be able to come in and unpick and undo the devastation that was done to the country um, in the previous eight years under under President Bush. Um, I think with this kind of, as you say, this rising vitriol of, of, of racism that we're really seeing so prevalent with, you know, the Tea Party and, and kind of what they've been doing in Congress and just every day out on the streets when we, when we look at, you know, cases like Trayvon Martin, I'm here in Los Angeles, there's a, a case with a young lady called Martrice Richardson who, you, you know, was arrested and then released in the middle of the night. You know, her bones were then found, you know, in a canyon in Malibu, and it's like no one can explain what happened. You know, it, it's just like this whole trail of errors that we're pretty certain would never have happened if she wasn't black. You know, there are just so mm-hmm. many injustices that we continue to hear about and speak about that just, just hurts hard and, and makes it heavy. Um, my concern going into 2012, um, the election in November, is that people, and I speak very specifically about people of color here, black folks, that folks are just fed up. They just feel like, well, you didn't do anything for me, so I'm just not going to bother. I'm not going to engage. And I think that is the most dangerous thing that could happen in 2012 because, well, if we don't get out and vote, what's the other option? President Gingrich, anyone? Not so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, then when we, we, we look at that Rick Santorum uh, uh, won the primary, the Republican primary in Louisiana today, mm-hmm. um, and I think he is as scary as um, as, New, as Newt Gingrich, and I they're think all scary, pretty scary. Even, let's face it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and one of the things James Perry, who's a former uh, candidate for mayor of the city of New Orleans, yeah. said uh, to to me today was in Louisiana, people were simply in in the elections there pinching their noses and voting for the least evil. And that's what um, they came up with. <laughs> and and, and that, is, that is so very sad, given where we were prior to the 2008 election. It's, so, it, it's, it's hard, but it is, you know, it's the nature of politics that we, you know, and again, I come, I come back to what, do, what Dr. Harding said because it was just so powerful that we're all part of this movement for the expansion and deepening of democracy in America. And if we don't take part, and it's not necessarily just about voting, it's about engaging what's going on in your community. If we don't engage, other people will step into the breach and fill that void. And someone will be elected, and it may not necessarily be who any of us would choose to have. And if we think things are bad now, well, let's see, let's see what, may, what the yep. world may be like by the time 2016 comes around. Yep. You're 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 absolutely right, Joanne Griffin. What's up for you, um, other than the huge book tour that uh, <laughs> you're obviously uh, engaged in right now? 
Well, I mean, there's more work to be done. Um, I'm actually doing a lot of work with um, with schools and colleges, um, some here in Los Angeles and up in the Bay Area. So it's continuing these these conversations as we lead up to the 2012 election. Um, so you know, if it's folks that are listening and they're like, you know, I think we'd like to have you come to our school, college, or to you know their particular community, you know, do get in touch. Um, you can go to the redefiningblackpower.com website, go to the contact page, all emails do actually, um, they do actually come through to me. Um, and for me, it's really about, as we said earlier on, this is, I would, I, you know, this this is the work that my career has been about, you know, even though I'm from the UK, it's always been about telling and detailing the stories of people of African descent throughout the diaspora. And, you know, if I can do this work and do it well, and, you know, when I'm long since dead buried and my bones are dry, that if somebody can look back on this work and get something from it, then, you know, my work will be done. So the work continues. Hopefully there will be a book two at least or a book three. Um, so, um, you know, send positive thoughts as I sit down and put more proposals together <laughs> to write another book. Mm -hmm. And um, but in the meantime, yeah, those crucial conversations around the United States will will continue. So, um, you know, do go to the website often. Um, if you're on Facebook, look for us at Redefining Black Power. And, yeah, join join the conversation because, you know, there's a lot for us to talk about. Through talking, we have healing. And, you know, the, the, the work is only just beginning. Well, we certainly look forward to inviting you as one of our consultants as we get closer uh, to November here at Our Common Ground. I think that uh, your work has uh, allowed you to have the kind of insight that our audience requires and would uh, uh, benefit from, and I'm certainly looking forward to having you become a regular here. Any any time, Janice. Now now that we know how to get in touch with each other, in any time, yeah. I'd love to be on again. Well, thank you very much, and you're certainly uh, invited to stay with us. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, the murder of Trayvon uh, Martin in our second segment, and um, I think it's going to be one that we both need and can quench ourselves in so because there is much work to be done. Our guest, Joanne Griffith, the book Redefining Black Power, Reflections on the State of Black America. We invite you to join Joanne at redefiningblackpower.com to write your history and your insights into our history. Joanne, thank you so very much, and we look forward to having you come back. Thank you, Janice. It's been a pleasure. Good night. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. If this is your first trip here, you'll know that we speak power, we speak truth to power and ourselves. I'm glad to be back in the seat in front of the microphone, and again, Thanks to all of our listeners who have been so comforting and extended such great friendship uh, in the passing of my mother and in her uh, illness uh, prior to her death. Thank you again. Later on tonight, I'll be making a tribute to my mother. This is Our Common Ground. 
common ground. Talk that matters. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us tonight. son, he'd look like Trayvon. And, um, you know, I think they are right to expect that all of us as Americans uh, are going to take this with the seriousness it deserves and that we're going to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. under the first 
African-American president. House Music Lover, thank you so much for being with us. The Don's in the house and Alpho, YJ, uh, thank you so much, and thanks to our guests for joining us. Our number here at Our Common Ground is 347-838-9852. If you would like to give us a call. We're going to go into our second page here at Our Common Ground. We're going to be talking about the murder of Trayvon Martin. As most of you will know, I was pretty much out of pocket uh, two weeks ago when this young man was gunned down by a neighborhood vigilante who seems to have some racial psychosis that we need to talk about. But we have been chanting, I am Trayvon Martin, uh, for more than two weeks. The nation is in outrage and protest. And one of the first questions that I have tonight on this topic is when we say I am Trayvon Martin, what do we mean? This was a murder under the cover of law, the law which is called Stand Our Ground. It was enacted by Governor Jeb Bush. Well, actually, this law began with Governor Bob Martinez, who later became the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development Secretary, appointed by George W. Bush, and who is now out making millions of dollars speaking. And then the law was amended by Governor Jeb Bush, and it is being enforced by Governor Scott of Florida. Now, how did we know this was all happening in Florida? I had to explain to my dear, dear friend, the host of the Alpha Show, Uh, Many times I've had to point out to him that there are a number of kinds of Florida. There is the Disney World Florida. There is the northern part of Florida, the central part of Florida, and there is South Florida, and they are all different cultures. As most of you know, I grew up in South Florida. But as a child going through North and Central Florida, I also had the experience during Jim Crow of going through certain towns and motoring with my family that you had to hide on the back floor going through certain towns. And you tried to get through those towns before midnight. That is Florida, folks. But let's start off this conversation about a murder under the cover of law. When I say the name Trayvon Martin, does it mean anything to you? If it doesn't, it should. This is Trayvon Martin. He was a 17-year-old African-American student who was shot and killed on February 26th. And there is still much about this case that we do not know, but here are the undisputed facts so far. When his killer first saw him, Trayvon was not breaking any laws. He was walking down the Sanford, Florida street a bit after 7 p.m. after purchasing a bag of candy and an iced tea. 
he was unarmed. 28-year-old George Zimmerman was a neighborhood watch volunteer on patrol that night. He saw Trayvon and thought he was suspicious and reported this to the police. This guy looks like he's up to no good or he's on drugs or something. It's raining and he's just walking around looking about. On the 911 call, Zimmerman goes on to tell police dispatch that he was following Trayvon and they told him not to. Moments later, Trayvon Martin was dead from a gunshot wound to the chest. Zimmerman was questioned. He claimed self-defense and that he feared for his life. He has not been arrested. He has not been charged. Trayvon's family wants justice and are calling for a federal investigation. I stand before you today not knowing how I'm walking right now because my heart hurts for my son. Trayvon is my son. Trayvon is your son. history. Before Trayvon, there was Amadou Diallo, there was Sean Bell, and there was Oscar Grant. Like Trayvon, each of these innocent young men was shot and killed while unarmed. They each left behind grieving families who were forced to deal with their untimely and senseless deaths. Then there's the policy. Have you heard about stop and frisk? The 1968 Supreme Court ruling in Terry versus Ohio allows police to stop and frisk any person on the street based on reasonable suspicion. It's a practice used by the New York City Police Department, and between 2004 and 2011, nearly 9 out of 10 of those New Yorkers who were stopped were completely innocent. And according to the New York Civil Liberties Union, furthermore, the bulk of those stopped were African American and Latino. Then there are the laws, state laws that can lead to deaths like Trayvon's. Since Florida's adoption of the Stand Your Ground law, at least 20 other states have adopted laws that allow citizens to use deadly force when threatened outside the home. We are dying in every city, Dang. in every state, in every town. Dang. And what is the Justice Department doing? Why don't you step up to the plate, Justice Department? and fight for the rights of those whose rights are being trampled upon by the force and power of the army of police, FBI, ATF, sheriffs and whatnot. What are you trying to force us to do? We should all remember this. Despite Zimmerman having injuries consistent with self-defense, he also had a gun. Trayvon had a bag of skills. His name is Trayvon Martin. When innocent children are killed, when their parents are left to wonder if their children's lives matter at all, at least we can remember their names. This government has failed us. The senators who are filibustering concerning your and my rights that's the government. Don't say it's southern senators. This is the government. This is the government filibuster. It's not a segregationist filibuster. It's a government filibuster. Any kind of activity that takes place on the floor of the Congress or the Senate, that's the government. Any kind of dilly-dallying, that's the government. Any kind of pussyfooting, that's the government. Any kind of act 
that's designed to delay or deprive you and me right now of getting full rights. That's the government that's responsible. And any time you find the government involved in a conspiracy to violate the citizenship or the civil rights of a people, then you are wasting your time going to that government expecting redress. Instead, you have to take that government to the world court and accuse it of genocide and all of the other crimes that it is guilty of today. You're tuned in to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us. Page 2, the Trayvon Martin case. We say, I am Trayvon Martin, but what do we mean? I'm Janice Graham. Let's talk. Ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. And thank you for being with us. Our call-in line is 347-838-9852. If you have said... I am Trayvon Martin. What does it mean? What will be our response other than outrageous protest? And I am certainly not saying or suggesting in any way that the outrage and the protest, the, the, the everything that we feel, uh, the anger about this case, about the murder of this child, is not legitimate, It is n- that it is not valid. It is. Our number, 347-838-9852. What do you mean, I am Trayvon Martin? What are the answers? What should be the appropriate response? What will you do? What have you done? in response to the murder of Trayvon Martin. How do we stop this kind of vigilante action? It is not isolated. It has happened to us before. As they say, as uh, for those of you who are fans of Battlestar Galactica, this has happened be- uh, before and it will happen again. Our number three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. I'll take your calls on the Trayvon Martin. I know that there are some of you who feel that you have talked more about this case than any case. And 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 my question is why this particular case, other than it is a child of 17 whose only weapon was a bag of Skittles and a can of Arizona iced tea. Why hasn't George Zimmerman, who admitted that he killed Trayvon Martin, not been arrested? 
what is with the people who are trying to rationalize this as not racial. Have the post-racial intellectuals contributed to the state where we are that George Zimmerman would not be arrested and would not be charged. We're also calling for April 10th, which is the day that the grand jury will re- will um, convene on this case. We're calling it the National Hoodie Day. A National Hoodie Day. April 10th, 2012. We are going to the hoodies. But what else are we going to do? I'll take your calls at 347-838-9852 after this break. We're waiting for your calls. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. one of the truth seekers join us on truth works network where truth is the language that we speak monday nights with peter e matthews and the global village voices wednesday nights architects of change with elvin dowling and friends they're all 9 p.m and then thursday and friday 10 p.m enter the lion's den with LDX and Information Man. And for the best political pushback talk on the Internet, The Alpha Show, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm Janice Graham, saying if you want to be a truth seeker, you have got to be a part of TruthWorks Network, where truth is spoken more than once. With a hand on my hand See, I
want to remind you of the I Declare show, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. ought to be your talk destination. Tonight here at Our Common Ground, we're talking about the Trayvon Martin murder. Our number is 347-838-9852. You know the facts. We've given you the background. What say you? What's your impression about what the government is doing? Uh, What does it mean that the chief of police of Sanford, Florida, has now resigned? He has not resigned. He stepped aside. And they are allowing him to step aside so that he can, in my opinion, keep his retirement. That's what that is all about. Um, And the other question that I have is about Mr. Bonaparte. And I know you have been talking about this and you're probably wrung out from talking about it. But Mr. Bonaparte, who is the city manager... What is the deal with this brother? And um, how surprised are you that Alan West, uh, the U.S. representative from South Florida, uh, has made a statement of outrage around the killing of Trayvon Martin? He has been so controversial in most of his uh, statements about most events uh, in this nation that uh, we were all kind of surprised that he uh, somehow found his way to find outrage about this. But this is not isolated. When we think about Sean Bell, Amadou, we think about Oscar Grant, and even if we go back and we think about the execution of Troy Davis, Today, a man in Memphis was arrested, an activist in Memphis, Tennessee, was arrested for his behavior uh, or his relationship with the Memphis Police Department. Even he was arrested, and he didn't kill anybody. How do we make sense of all of this? Michael Vick killed some dogs, or hurt some dogs, offended some dogs, or whatever he was doing, and he went to prison for it, and he was arrested post-haste. But George Zimmerman, who admitted that he shot this young man, and in the face of just the evidence on the surface, the misconduct of the police department, And George Zimmerman is in hiding, and the likelihood that in the absence of evidence that was destroyed, distorted, or made useless, nullified in the process of police, no investigation, under investigation, misinvestigation, will never go to prison. But we'll see what this grand jury will do. But keep in mind that a grand jury is made up of local people. This is all about the culture of the local community. A community, a gated community, 
a police department who knew that somehow this man had some kind of psychosis going and a desire to be a police a police police officer and have the authority and power of the police department and he wasn't being watched but that's all part of our history now isn't it our number 347-838-9852 when we hear Trayvon screams we are reminded that we have been here before starting nearly 500 years ago when 2 million Africans died, were killed, or committed suicide during the transatlantic slave trade. Two out of three is the estimated number of men who embarked on that voyage from the west coast of Africa. Between the years 1882 and 1951, 3,437 black people were lynched in the United States, most of them black men. Fewer than 1% of lynch mob participants were ever brought to justice. Zero is the number of anti-lynching laws ever passed by the United States Senate, despite numerous attempts to introduce legislation in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. 105 is the number of years it took for the Senate to apologize for its failure to act when the first anti-lynching law was proposed. 2005 is when that finally happened, when the U.S. Senate approved Resolution 39. 18 is the number of white defendants executed for the murder of black victims in the U.S. since 1976. 252 is the number of black defendants executed for the murder of white victims in the U.S. since 1976. It's a number not likely included on the CDC's list of leading causes of death for black males between the ages of 15 and 34, where the most unforgettable number of all is one. Homicide holds the number one spot on that list of causes of death for black men between the ages of 15 and 34. Now, it's easy to lose sight of the personhood of young black men amidst the jumble of numbers detailing the problems of young black men. But in the summer of 1955, the entire nation bore witness thanks to one devastated mother who offered up her personal and private grief for public and political scrutiny and launched a movement. Mamie Till Mobley allowed Jet Magazine to publish the photos of the brutalized body of her son, Emmett Till. He was tortured and killed by a group of Southern vigilantes for allegedly whistling at a white woman, which is no more a crime than walking home in the rain with a bag of candy. Her courageous choice sparked an activist response that would ultimately give life to the contemporary civil rights movement. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to ours and ourselves. And we'll go to our phones. 312, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. Hotep. 312, you got to turn down your computer. Jeff? Yes. Hey, Jennifer, coming out of Chicago. Good to talk to you. Good to have you with us tonight. Yeah, I'm glad you're back. It's uh, good to hear you on the radio again, too. Missed your voice. Thank you. And, um, you know, Trevon, um lost his him is, um, you know, so many words have been been spoken about it, and all of them have been eloquent. And um, But they still fall short, you know, in terms of just the, the whole tragedy of it. Um, I was surprised that um, Alan West said anything. Actually, I hadn't heard that. You're the first person I heard even uh, bring up his name. And if he had anything um, 
supportive to the family to say, I, I am shocked. Um, so I, I look forward to uh, uh, searching that up um, after your, your show your show is over. Um, as far as the city manager, is that the gentleman you're asking about? Yeah, Bonaparte. Bonaparte. Yeah, they said that after the no confidence vote, there were only two options uh, legally that he was either going to be fired or asked to step down. I didn't know a temporary step down was going to be an option. Um, and if that's okay and he has the say-so to, you know, really cast him aside to get rid of him and he lets it slide, then he's not, he's not, um, he's not pro the family. He's not going to do the family any good. Um, well, be... aside from that, he's not doing the, the city any good, but you know how those things go, house music lover. What they're doing is positioning him so that he can resign or retire early. Yeah, they let him, they want to let him off easy. Um, yeah, yeah. And they don't they, want they don't want to interrupt his life. Yeah, they don't want to inconvenience him. You know, like that uh, guy from BP with the spill. You know, they didn't want to he yep. didn't want to be inconvenienced. Um, and they allowed him not to be inconvenienced. You know, even though mm-hmm. he, he left. And he took his millions. He wants to leave and take his retirement, as you said, and doesn't want any blame. Although mm-hmm. he says uh, it's been reported that he stands by that uh, uh, shoddy investigation and Zimmerman's side of the story. He stands by. Mm-hmm. He's not retracting Well, anything. he was a spokesperson for Zimmerman from the very yeah. beginning. And how does that happen? Um, well, that happens in a good old boy um community like Sanford, Florida. Yeah, that's not even good old boy. That's great old boy. Because yeah. <laughs> they basically, they basically and, and I don't want to sound insensitive, but it sounds like they were out hunting and they bagged whatever. And he came and saw and, and saw what he shot and checked his gun, cleaned it out, gave it back to him and sent him on his way. Well, I mean, that's the, how inhumane the... it sounds to me. One of the most horrific parts of all of of this story is the fact that Trayvon, Trayvon Martin was in the morgue his for three days before his yeah. parents were able to uh, uh, identify where he was. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to yeah. tell me in a small community like Sanford and a family is looking for a 17-year-old black boy with white sneakers, mm-hmm. that the police made no effort to identify him or even press his uh, body to the list of um, missing persons. Yeah. And that was, and what do you think that is? I mean, and it's not about conspiracy, but what do you think that is? Total disregard and disrespect for uh, his life and his death. Absolutely. But another was to destroy the evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it seems like they already did that good of a job. But, you know, one of the things that has occurred to me, and I want to get your your take on this, and uh, for those of you who are listening, our number is 347-838-9852. like to get your, your take on this as well is I'm wondering if George Zimmerman was an in- police department or state 
uh, Florida Highway Patrol informant. And that is why they protected him. I mean, here's a guy who's called since January 2011, 46 calls. The police department had to know him. Yeah, absolutely. They they had to have known him. Um, Although my understanding is they didn't know of any um, um, uh, community uh, uh, policing group that had him as the head of it either. Not Um, even the head, not even a member. Right, right, exactly. So... I don't know. I, that, that's a good but point. But the scary um, part of it, the scary part of it is that you've got racial psychotics out there who have been turned down time after time for uh, police officer positions because they didn't make the, the the grade, and they still are out there trying to be a police officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so scary. true. That's um. That's incredible, and I, just just to actually be able to kill somebody like that, though, even if they claim self defense, you should not be able to walk away from the scene and have your gun handed back to you. It doesn't well, let's, matter. Let's talk about this self defense thing. Uh, it's being reported by his attorney, by Zimmerman's attorney, that he had a broken nose mm-hmm. and that he had a, a head contusion. Mm-hmm. Now, in the two weeks since the murder, that could be a setup. Mm. I mean, if I was facing the possibility of being arrested for cold-blooded murder, mm-hmm. I'd let somebody hit me over the head and break my nose, too. I'd punch myself in the nose. <laughs> I know, I know, I know down. a good door trick. <laughs> Absolutely. I raised my knee to my nose real quick. It was the same same thing. You get the same But these are the things that these are the things that happen. And in regard to the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice can only has what is called authority Mm -hmm. under law. And the only law that in which they can intervene is a hate crime. Now, that Mm -hmm. brings us to what we do know about George Zimmerman. And we do know that part of what he did, I mean, he became a vigilante the minute he stepped out of that car, the minute he said to the police that he would not pursue, and he did. Mm -hmm. And second, uh, on the call, he mentioned that the guy was black and how they always get away with it. Well, he um, was asked that by the police officer. I mean, the police department was trying to set up a profile so that when they went in, they would know exactly who they were looking, what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is with the hoodie thing. It's mm-hmm. raining. Don't right. you put your, your hood on, I mean, uh, when it's raining? When I yeah, go to he- the mailbox... And it's snowing or it's raining. I put the hood on, right, right, or my Something coat like. or my jacket. So yeah. we cannot. And you know, one of the things that I keep saying, and I have to tell you about your hometown. I keep saying that we cannot. We don't have the luxury here of dissecting 
asking whether or not this was racial. I mean, I heard Chris Matthews with his dumbass self say on national TV, well, what are the things that we can determine whether this was racial? We know from being black in America how racial this was. Mm-hmm. I mean, one no, of the things you you mentioned was what Zimmerman had to say in the tape. We heard yeah. him say that they always get away with this. Mm-hmm. They always get away. They who? Mm-hmm. They who? Let me ask you another question uh, that I've been interested in, and, you know, I've been uh, just mounting at the bit to get back to the microphone to talk about this. Um, um, and one of the things that I was interest, I'm, I'm interested since yesterday when President Obama made his statement, what did you make of his statement? What was your response, uh, your impression of his of his statement on yesterday? Uh, um, <laughs> you know, I was um, I was pleased and that he related his blackness. Um, and his children's blackness to the ability of being a victim, you know, and with all this white supremacy and white supremacist action still going on in the country. Um, I, w- I was happy he at least acknowledged that, um, saying that if he had sons, yeah, the son would look like Javon. Um, that, to me, I, 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 was, I was pleased with that and pleased that he reached out to the family. But mm-hmm. you know, I have, I have problems with the administration, especially where they are, you know, they're killing American citizens and blah blah blah. But at the very least, uh, I was happy that he did. You know, it, it's interesting the way uh, in which the president made his statement because that was the first thing that I thought when I saw the picture of Trayvon Martin mm-hmm. three weeks ago. Wow, he looks like he could be President Obama's son. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing that I thought Mm -hmm. when I saw his picture. Mm -hmm. Went right through my mind. But um, I I think his his statement was important. It was Mm -hmm. appropriate. And I think the timing, I mean, last week I was saying I hope he makes no statement right now because then he would have become the issue and the real issue of the case would have gotten lost. So I I, I think that the administration was was very smart in in doing that. Um, And you bring up a good point about the timing. Um, I thought that briefly. And um, I didn't think they would say anything for a while. And I, I think when they did say it, that you're, you're right, they absolutely said it at the right time. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. the absolute right time. I, I'll, I'll give them that. It was the right time. Yeah. Now, um, let me ask you now, one of my – I have so many questions about this case that I want to hear from people. It was really interesting. I said I'd tell you about your hometown. Most of the time doing this case, I was down in South Florida. And um, I was in a group of maybe about 20 people, mm-hmm. and I asked people what their reaction was to the Trayvon 
Martin case um, and shared my view that there are very few places, local, uh, small towns in the state of Florida where this could could uh, have not happened mm-hmm. because of how the local politics, the local police, the local white supremacist culture operates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of the people that I was talking to in your hometown, <laughs> uh, my my adopted hometown, nine of them never heard of Trayvon Martin. I was really? furious, absolutely furious. Here are people who say that they teach school, they are administrators in the school department, that. Uh, they have a, a job and make money, and they're pretty middle class. They're homeowners. They have children. They have grandchildren, and they have not heard of Trayvon Martin. How could that be? Wait, this was my hometown of Chicago, or my adopted hometown no, your of West Palm Beach? of West Palm Beach. <laughs> okay, my adopted home. Okay, well, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I have no uh I have no answer for that. I have mm-hmm. zero answer for that. Um how it saturated the news all last week. Um even the week before. I remember hearing about it uh uh soon after it happened, but it, it took a minute for yeah. uh that to snowball. Um so if it was a week after it happened, um okay. Um I I guess I it could be it could be a pass for that. But any time mm-hmm. since uh, a week ago today, um, I find that hard to believe. Especially mm-hmm. harder to believe after each with each day from last Sunday till today. Um mm-hmm. it'd be a little mm-hmm. hard to believe. Um really, I, really interesting. Our people have got to do better. Um, especially being in Florida. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. I remember hearing about crazy stories of things happening in Bell Glade, and maybe because I was working for the county at the time. Um, but that's still what forty odd yeah. miles outside of the city. For those of you who do not know the geography of uh, Florida, Bell Glade is a town which is a major agricultural center of Florida. That the population of African Americans, Hispanics, and Latinas. Uh, are agricultural workers. They pick beans and they cut cane. And they work mostly for the American Sugar Corporation. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a very poor community with uh, still good old boy politics. Yeah, and, and it seems like everybody is one person removed from everybody else. So it's kind of a... Uh, <laughs> Known community, you know. Yeah. Now um, I've got to go to another caller, but I, I I do want to ask you: Have you said I am Trayvon Martin? Um, I was listening to uh, in my PD the other day uh, last last night, and he did a whole hour of nothing but taking calls that way. So in my mind, absolutely, I had associated myself with that. Um, mm-hmm. I am. Trayvon what do you Martin. think that means? What does that mean for you? Uh, to me, it means that that could have been me. Um, to mm-hmm. me, it means that, you know, absolutely, um, that was a brother in my community. Um, 
absolutely in this you know in this country that we live in and this system that we live in, and as that uh, Jabari X song um, absolutely said at the end, um, you know this country still just values white life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it devalues, and devalues black life. Black life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's what I that's what I take from it. Um, well, thank you, House Music Lover. It's good to be back. Thank you for your welcoming. And uh, we look forward to talking more about this issue uh, at our common ground. Thank you. If I could drop two quick things. Uh, Mr. Bell, uh, who was a murder victim in Brooklyn a couple years ago, his wife was on. Excuse me, Sean Bell. His wife was on the show this morning, and she said one of the detectives was fired today. Yes. Um, we did the shooting mm-hmm. yesterday, excuse yep. me, and she thought yep. it was because of the Martin incident and the pressure and the people that came out for the hoodie march, and right. that's why they thought they did it yep. the way they did but it those when are, they did it. For, for our audience, um, she was, Sean Bell's fiance was on um, Melissa Harris' Uh, Perry's show on MSNBC and we thank Melissa so much for doing such a fine job. I've been using clips of hers. It's good to have good reporting, good insight, and to be able to reuse the tools of the media uh, for our purposes and we thank her very much. Thanks for for that note. The other note was? Uh, in Mississippi, the, uh, the, the young guy that ran over the uh, black man with his pickup truck Mm-hmm. Um, was believe uh, he was found. Was he found guilty or was he sentenced? Uh, he was he was found to, guilty and found he was guilty. sentenced to two concurrent life sentences. And he um, was saved from the death penalty by the by the sister of the mm-hmm. victim. Right, Barbara and Anderson he, stood and pleaded to the court right. um, not to use the death penalty. Yeah, and he offered. Um, However, the, I can't remember how the family took it, but he did offer um, some words to the family. Um, and there are no words to the family from the Zimmermans or the attorney who was on uh, TV last night. So yep. just yep. a couple quick things. But uh, it's okay. so good to hear you again, Janice, and, uh, you know, we're going to talk real soon. Thank you, House House Music Lover out of Chicago. We're going to go to 931 uh, thank you for your call, Hotep. I respect you. Hotep, Janice, Hotep. And you have my personal and heartfelt condolence in the loss of your mother. Thank you very much. I think YJ, that by this the way. is YJ. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. How you doing? I know we don't um, have that much time, um, so I'm going to go ahead and cut to the chase. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, my... Chase uh, Common. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah uh, my... Uh, yeah, I am a uh, I am Trayvon uh, Martin, and uh, and I have experienced uh, all this uh, profiling and, and racism, everything you want to call it. I have experienced it, so I know, uh, you know, I, I can't, I don't, actually don't know what he went through because he's dead. But I, I kind of have, you know, got a feeling what you know what went down. But uh, my main emphasis is uh, I'm trying to figure out, you know, uh, my son leaves, go to the store, and you know, and he doesn't come back. So that's a hard one. Yeah. So my thing is, uh, I'm not going. You know, I give my son maybe 30 minutes, an hour. If he's not back, I'm going to look for him. Mhm. I'm going. I'm going well, back to. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. 
yeah, I I hear what you're saying. Um, but you you know, I'm I'm, I'm just not sure it. what the circumstance. I'm I'm yeah. I'm confused about. Yes, I am. Yeah, I am definitely the first. The first reports were that his father lived in this gated community. Then I read another report that said that they were vis- his father was visiting friends in this community. So I'm not sure what was happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, you don't expect that a 17-year-old can't go to the store waste some time. You know how 17-year-olds, I mean, I send my grandson into his room at my house to go get something, and it t- and 10 minutes later, he's into something else, and I'm waiting for whatever I sent him for. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I just think that it's not unreasonable for us to think that our children at the appropriate age can't go on an errand. I mean, well, you know, I mean that, sometimes it happens. Well, that, that's that's not my issue. My issue is, uh, you know, based on what information that I have and what I've read, but I've, I haven't, haven't heard what you just mentioned to me about about uh, he, but that the father was visiting this gated community. And I, from what I read and understood is that he and his, and his uh, I guess his girlfriend lived in the Gated community in the community, uh huh. Right, okay. And, uh, Tra- and Trayvon was visiting from the, from Miami, okay. And uh, so I, what I'm saying is, uh, I can, what I can't understand, my son in the mall for three days, and I don't know. That's what I'm. That's what I, that's what gets me. Well, you know the thing, uh, if you've ever been involved in a missing person uh, situation, people, the bureaucracy just puts people in a tailspin. I mean, it's just, it, 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 these are horrific circumstances. And I am sure that these people, this mother and this father, was looking for him. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm just, I, you know, they have not been mentioned in the media, but, you know, uh-huh. I'm, just, I'm just, you know, and I guess all that will come out eventually. You know, because I, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, as a father myself, I would, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I could, you know, if I, my son said, well, I'm going to store dad to get some whatever, and you know, I said, okay, son, all right, see when you get back, you know, and I'm, you yep, know, I'm going, hey, wait a minute, this hour was my son, yeah, so I'm going to get yep. get up, you know, so I, you know, that's there's a lot of unanswered questions, so yeah, there are that. a lot of unanswered. Usually you would be able to go to a police report. There are processes and steps every mm-hmm. investigator right. has to record. Mm-hmm. And you should be able to go to a police report. And every instant of event of the entire case is laid out in the police report. Right. Mm-hmm. For instance, what? I was coming back from Florida a couple of weeks ago, and I walked into the, you know, where they do the TSA thing, and this woman comes with this little thing that looks like a piece of paper, and she rubs it on my hand. And I say, excuse me, what is this? What are you putting on my hand? And she said, this is not 
I'm not putting anything on your hand. I'm testing your hand for explosives, residue. Mm-hmm. With, I mean, she didn't, I, I, it caught me off guard. Right. You know, so, um, and I'm saying, well, you know, I wrote TSA. She should have informed me that she was going to be doing this. Right, I agree. I definitely agree so with that. So if they can test me for explosives and test me that quickly with a little, I mean, it was a little piece of paper. I don't know what the, the chemical was or anything. I don't, I asked her if there were chemicals on it, and she said no. So um, she says, I'm taking something off your hand. I'm not putting anything on your hand. So you can't tell me that these police officers didn't even know the basic steps for investigating a crime scene. Shit, they could have looked at NCIS or CSI Miami or something better than what they did. Yeah, well, I, I definitely, I definitely, I'm, I agree with you. I think there's definitely a cover-up. There's definitely a cover-up. Yep. And, and yep. I, I guess when the, whenever that went down, I guess Zimmerman, I guess he panicked or whatever. But uh, well, to I, me, there's only one reason for a cover-up, and that is that this guy is an informant. Mm-hmm. I got you. I got you. I got you. Yep. Yeah. Right. I got to well, go, YJ, okay. but I'm glad right. to see you out there. Okay. You be have safe. A good evening. All right. Have a good evening okay. and a good weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you. And thank you all for being with us. Uh, and, again, I want to thank all of my Our Common Ground family for your love and support during the time of the loss of my mother. My mother and all of our mothers are very precious. But I was especially blessed to have a mother who was faithful and who, in her quiet understanding and wisdom of all of the barriers, of all the impediments, of all of the things that could ensnarl me, gave me strength and guidance. And tonight as we go out, I want to um, play tribute to her and to once again thank you. But aren't you glad for praying, Mama? Ain't, ain't nothing like a mama. And your mama may be gone today, but the prayers that she prayed for you, they still cover you. You know, I'm reminded. When I would wake up and I would hear Mama talking to Jesus, her prayer to Him was, "Lord, let me live to see all of my children get wrong." She said, "Bar go on, sing about Jesus and stay with Him, stay on His side." Mama would go down on her knees and talk to Jesus. Seemed like somehow in, in, in some way, oh, I don't want to get too happy. Mama would pray 
And the next morning, all the children would be sitting around the table with a smile on their face. So mama, mama prayed that everything would be all right. I can't tell it all. from the struggles of Southern survival. She had her victories. She learned her lessons, and she passed them on. I will always be grateful for a mother of wisdom and of grace. Rest in peace, Mother.